book, The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World, Jim Schuto, a co-anchor of CNN Newsroom and CNN's chief national security correspondent, assesses the president's erratic, baffling leadership style through the lens of his handling of relations with Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, Syria, Ukraine, and COVID-19. It's published by HarperCollins and brings James Sh Ernest Shuto to our show now. Welcome. I've really been looking forward to coming on. And I've been looking forward to talking to you about this. The problem is there's just too much to talk about. We'll get to as much of it as we can. Um, isn't the madman theory commonly associated with Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger? Although uh, I have read somewhere that perhaps Machiavelli might be uh, credited as its originator. I suppose a long history of leaders claiming uh, to be able to, to get the best of their opponents by keeping them off balance. It, you know, it's, it's Nixon who who owned it and 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 sort of named it. Uh, I mean, it's in H.R. Haldeman Haldeman's uh, memoirs, calling it the Madman Theory, and 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 he did you know very explicitly instruct Kissinger at the worst point of the Vietnam War to convey to the North Vietnamese that he was just mad enough to order a nuclear strike, you know, the intention to get leverage in those negotiations. Now, the fact is, it didn't work. Uh, we know how that war ended. The North, Korea, the North Vietnamese did not blink. But what struck me in covering Donald Trump as president, you know, four years in office, but even going back to his campaign, is that he and his allies, and I'm sure you've heard this, Leonard, and, and, and your listeners as well, have claimed multiple times that this is his style. He keeps everybody off balance. He he swoops in at the end of negotiations with an outrageous demand or an outrageous concession. But he's got a plan, and based on his gut and these sort of you know queen style negotiation tactics, he gets the better of the other side. Now the, the trouble with Donald Trump's uh, madman theory as it plays out on the world stage is that. Uh, one, what, what may sometimes work in, in the real estate market in New York uh, doesn't always or even often work with uh, in, in geopolitics. But also, th th Trump has been just as likely to unleash his madman on allies as adversaries. L look at our dealings with NATO allies. L look at his uh, deeming, for instance, Canada a national security threat to impose steel tariffs on them or threaten to take U.S. troops off the Korean Peninsula from our ally South Korea, or even, as I chronicle in the book, keeping your advisors on edge, surprising them. They saw him as unpredictable and as disconnected from any broader strategy. So, so Trump has put his own very Trumpian spin uh, on the madman theory. What, was he doing this when he was just in real estate, or is this something that came up when he became president? Did he? Do you think he read? Uh, Herman Kahn's book, Thinking the Unthinkable, where Kahn wrote that to look a little crazy might be an effective way to induce an adversary to stand down? In the White House, I'd be surprised if he read the book, but, but he has claimed- <laughs> He doesn't read. To, to, have used, <laughs> to have used that tactic uh, in real estate. There's a little bit of, you know, he references this in the art, art of the deal at times, but, but mm. what you discover or what you reinforce from speaking to people who work with him in government is that, is that so much of this is presentation as opposed to reality, right? That, that there's a there's a paper tiger aspect to the way 
he uh, approaches the world, because, for instance, he claims to be putting, say, you know, the Putins or the Kim Jong-uns or the Xi Jinpings of the world uh, off balance, see their dealings with him, their view of him, and again, this is based on folks who work for Trump at the most senior levels, they're quite often or more often than not playing him, right? Mm-hmm. Eric leader getting on a phone call with him and convincing him to remove troops from, from Syria to, to serve Turkey's interests. Kim Jong-un, over the course of four years, I mean, just based on the record, clearly playing Trump, you know, expanding his nuclear program while claiming to have this bromance. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, professed strength or wisdom in theory that doesn't, uh, that isn't corroborated by how it played out in the real world. You say that by numerous accounts, President Trump, I'm quoting you, as commander in chief is self-confident, impulsive, skeptical, of official advice, foreign allies, and, and career diplomats. He's willing to ignore information, contradict and defy advisors, and and he believes that he alone knows best. So um, what effect does that have on the people who are supposed to advise him, for example, in the intelligence community? Uh, have they given up? Because, you know, this is the thing, there, there are still a lot of, thankfully, true believers out there, right? Folks who believe in their jobs, believe in the institutions, and they're doing the best, their best in the midst of this. Now, now everybody has their limits, right? Um, and, and we've seen that. You know, for Jim Mattis, the limit was the, the withdrawal by tweet from Syria, and Mattis resigned. Um, others resigned at different points, uh, but, but others are still hanging around. I mean, it's interesting. I speak to Sue Gordon for the book. She she was the the number official and was going to be the number one one until President Trump forced her out. Uh, I think he dropped out. You, you, saying, oh. you, you dropped out. She was the second highest ranking intelligence official before she quit. Right. Out because because she wasn't uh, loyal enough in Trump's mm-hmm. view. Right. And we saw who. The president then installed as director of national intelligence a, a political operative uh, who then proceeded to go on a loyalty purge inside the institution. She, she, this is a woman who served for decades, and, and the way she described the president is, and she briefed him many times, is that he is reflexively contrarian. Uh, if you say one thing, if his advisors recommend one thing, He'll say the other. Well, why can't this be true? And the point she makes is, listen, that's fine if you're questioning my opinion or analysis, right? Because people could look at the same set of facts and come to a different conclusion. She says where it becomes problematic is when he, Tim, and she describes this in the book, when you present him things that we know, you know, not things that we're guessing at, things we have seen, observed, or even objective facts like, say, you know, the extent of a pandemic, right, or Russian interference in the election. And the president, because it's inconvenient to him or doesn't suit his views or short-term political interests, will just deny it. And uh, that is a, that's a remarkable approach to have for the commander-in-chief. But he, it, he even goes against a conventional wisdom on something like NATO, which many people feel has been a stabilizing force since the end of World War II. What reasons does he have? Is it simply his that he complains that we we spend too much money on it and, and our allies don't put enough money into it? 
combination of things. One, big picture, the president doesn't understand or have an appreciation for alliances. I, I, I interviewed H.R. McMaster for this book, who was his national security advisor before Bolton, and he said he couldn't that alliances had value beyond a straight transactional approach, right? You know, things like shared values, support for political freedom, even shared intelligence on uh, terror threats, et cetera. They sees it uh, be a tunnel vision of are they paying enough? You know, that, that, that money is, is very central to the president's view of a whole host of relationships with, with again, allies and adversaries. But also beyond that, th there's, there's a mixing of the national interests with his personal interests. I couldn't get anybody inside this administration to explain why the president has just withdrawn a big chunk of U.S. forces in Germany other than personal upset at Angela Merkel. No one in government, no one in the Pentagon, no one in, in Capitol Hill, Republicans included, recommended that decision or support that decision. But the president does it anyway. And uh, the, the connection to his personal relationship to Merkel is one that folks who work for him couldn't eliminate from the occasion, uh, from the equation. And, and that's, that's a factor that came up in a whole host of the, the president's uh, decisions uh, uh, regarding China, regarding North Korea and others. Well, how did they react when uh, he he called Angela Merkel stupid on it on a phone call? He also said the same uh, about Theresa May uh, when when she was the British Prime Minister. Um, that's just bad form, isn't it? Is it they're allies? Don't you still speak to them in a respectful way? Right, and it, and it's interesting. Um, he has, uh, another of his senior advisors described to me, and this is someone who advised him on Russia, that oddly, almost inexplicably, he has greater hostility towards allies than adversaries in that he looks at it, he looks at it, everything is a zero-sum game, right? We're all dirty players in a dirty game. But he has more animus against them because he thinks they owe us something that because the U.S. has deployed troops on their shores to defend them, etc. They owe us more. Therefore, uh, therefore, he looks at them with even greater skepticism in some circumstances than he does with a Putin. I mean, it's it's remarkable. It's so it's not just upsetting the status quo. It's it's the mirror image of the status quo on these things. And, and by the way. It, it denies, ignores, or refuses to see the very real threat that these countries pose to us. And it's been pointed out that he seems to get along better with, uh, with uh, autocrats like Putin, like Erdogan, like the, the, the leaders of uh, the Saudi Arabia, like uh, Bolsonaro in, uh, in Brazil, um, than he does with the uh, the people you would think would be closer in uh, ideology as far as democracy is concerned to the United States. Most disturbing aspects of his leadership, uh, the admiration for the strongmen. And I'm going to talk about Russia for a moment here, because I asked everyone I interviewed for this book, again, only Trump administration officials, to explain his deference to Russia, because his deference to Russia is arguably the most consistent 
feature of his foreign policy. And the best explanation they could come with is that he simply admires Vladimir Putin. He admires the man. He also envies the system, the power that he has in the system. But he also shares with Putin a nihilistic view of the world. Like I was saying earlier, we're all dirty players in a dirty game. You remember that uh, interview he did with Bill O'Reilly early in his term where O'Reilly reminded him that Putin was a killer. And Trump mm-hmm. said, well, are we all, you know, are any of us that great? Even more recently, with the intelligence on Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, as well as Russia selling weapons to the Taliban uh, two years before to kill U.S. soldiers, mind you. Uh, the, the president, reminded of that, said, well, we sold weapons to the Taliban in the 80s. There's no difference, you know. Now, not only is that shocking, but it's consequential because intelligence officials I interviewed for this book said that in their view, Putin uh, was and is running something of an influence operation. That's an, that's an espionage term on the president, but it's, a, it's an operation intended to get someone to think more like you and make decisions that are more favorable to you. One of his senior advisors said to me, this is in the book, that Putin is Trump's honey trap. I mean, it's a remarkable way for um, for his own senior advisors and officials and administrations to describe the commander in chief. Uh, and it has consequences in the way the president makes decisions regarding Russia. My guest on London Lopate at Large today here on WBAI New York, streaming on WBAI.org, is Jim Shuto, whose latest book is The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. It is published by HarperCollins. Now, um, let's talk a bit about your sources here, because unlike many books that offer inside information, uh, you try to avoid citing unnamed sources. Don't most people who fear for their jobs usually resist going on the record? Or did you mostly speak I, to people who, who have since left the administration, either by choice or because they were fired? I, I only see one or two people who actually are still there. A lot of former officials actually don't, yeah. typically don't want to speak on the record either because they want to guarantee some sort of future in government, right? Particularly if they come from if they come from uh, conservative circles. Um, but but for this book, I asked I asked them all to go on the record because I said your views will have more credibility if you're willing to stand behind them. And it, can often be a, a sort of a critical mass in this, but if you get one and then the next one's a little bit more likely, and then before you know it, you have everyone uh, trying to sort of, you know, get their point of view out there. But I think in addition to that, you have a lot of people who served in this administration who are concerned about how it conducted business, and they're concerned about the effect on this country. Um, and they're willing to say that at, frankly, risk to their reputations. I know for a fact, because I was communicating with them and the last couple of days, that one of the sources from my book has gotten threats because of the comments he made in the book, you know, the world that we live in today. I mean, I get threats all the time just being a CNN guy, but, you know, that's fine. Um, But, you know, because they're concerned about their country. You were, uh, you caught some flack on Fox News from DePaul University professor and media critic Jeffrey McCall, because uh, he argues that writing this book blends news with commentary while you remain in your role at CNN. 
Um, now, I, I was, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that that came from Fox News. Uh, before the book came out, and, and they clearly hadn't read the book, right? They, they, they hadn't read the book to know that these were comments on the record. They hadn't read the book to know that I speak to both critics and loyalists of this president. Um, hadn't read the book to, to, to see that I give credit to the president where credit where, where I believe credit is due, where, yeah. where uh, he made progress, things like standing up to, to Chinese malign activity. So th this is a knee-jerk um, reaction that we often get from those quarters. I'm used to it. Um, I did, by the way, get, get a very positive review in the Washington Examiner, which is a conservative publication. You know, my goal here is I, I entered with an open mind. And and I, and I tried to approach this journalistically by speaking to as many people as possible and just asking them to lay it out. Um, so it's not intended to be an editorial. It's intended to be a before and after, in effect, uh, of Trump's effect on the world. So some of the people you interviewed are Mick Mulroy, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, Susan Gordon, the country's second highest ranking intelligence official at the time, Fiona Hill, the former European and Russian Affairs Director on the National Security Council, uh, Joseph Yun, the, the former Special Representative for North Korean Policy, Steve Bannon, and somebody who's still very much in the news and, uh, and in the uh, administration, Peter Navarro, Trump's trade advisor. Um, he, now, Peter Navarro says that Trump's pragmatism is an asset, although, and he insists that Trump is the hardest working president in history, uh, despite the evidence to the contrary? Uh, does he not ever see the, all of the, that video of, of Trump just walking around or playing golf and um, tweeting all the time? Are you there? The current environment is pretty remarkable. I'm here, can you hear me? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, every once in a while you drop out, so I'm not sure. Uh, but listen, the, the, the growth of uh, denialism, if you want to call it that, uh, in our current uh, discourse is amazing to me, the way, the way folks will just deny the record. But let's set that aside for a moment, because uh, one thing I did in the book was to speak to the loyalists, the true believers, like a Navarro or a Steve Bannon, to explain politics behind the president's approach to the world, America first, the madman theory. and. I have a feeling we're going to have to try to get a new connection here. You're dropping out a lot. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Now it's How's better. That? Yes, much better. Okay, good. Sorry, uh, uh, I'm going to stick. Stick. Uh, this is probably just a better. I'm, I'm sure all of us, everybody listening, has been in that uh, moment before when you lose the signal. But um, if you talk to the, we folks see it on CNN a lot. Pop, I know. I know. It's a new normal. <laughs> Um, the politics behind America first, you can understand them. Steve Bannon makes the point. If you look at the deplorables uh, that voted for Trump, if you want to call them that, and remain loyal to him, they lost out in globalization. Many of them lost their jobs or certainly didn't reap the biggest rewards of globalization. So they see these trade deals from Republicans and Democrats, right, um, as having left them behind. And then with the quote-unquote endless wars, right, in Iraq or Afghanistan, they found that they were sending their kids to go fight those wars. So they feel 
that they got the short end of the stick twice. So when a, when a presidential candidate comes and says, I will right all those wrongs, I will end those wars, I will make the trade deals work for you, they're willing to give them a chance. Now, the thing is, if you look at the record, right, there are actually more troops in the Middle East today than there were when he started. He sent, you know, many thousands in and around uh, uh, the Persian Gulf in, in the run-up in tensions with, with Iran, even as he's reduced elsewhere. But the bottom line is more. Um, if you look at the economic plan, I mean, certainly in the midst of the pandemic, who is who is winning and who is losing in this? You know, the record shows that they're no better off. But in terms of the the emotion behind it, right, um, and and the experience behind it, it, it makes sense. You, you you can get where that comes from, and I think it's important, you know, as we assess this, this that you uh, that, that we all listen and hear to that. You, you know, um, you know, Peter Navarro has a, we have an exchange in there where he he makes the point that you've heard from the president too. He's like, is has the, where has the Washington establishment gotten it right in foreign policy? You, you know, the the Iraq invasion. You know, a, a disaster. We're still suffering the consequences of it. Um, so you can see uh, where they can make that argument. The trouble is, when you look at the before and after of his four years in office, North Korea is more, not less of a threat. It's got more nukes now. You know, Kim played Trump, you can argue. Iran is closer, not further from a nuclear weapon. Russia, for all Trump's claims of being tough on them, is more, not less aggressive. So when you look at the bottom line, uh, there's really not a record to support the argument. But his defenders sometimes bend over backwards in a really weird way. Peter Navarro last Sunday told Chuck Todd on Meet the Press that the Lord and the Founding Fathers created executive orders because of partisan bickering and divided government. And he said, that's what we have here, but the president has taken action. The Lord and the Founding Fathers? Yeah, I mean, some of the rhetoric it, it, it almost makes you smile, ex- except that it, it has a real it has a real effect. It's it's um you know this is the other aspect that, that is Soviet, frankly. You know, is this attack on the truth, right? Attack on facts, even the facts of a global pandemic. Are the deaths really real? Are they really from COVID? Is you know are we seeing the, this rise in infections because more people are getting infected? Yes, that's the science, or just because we have more tests. You know, uh, Russia was it started in a lab in Wuhan? Was it started as in a lab in Wuhan as as uh, both Trump and Mike Pompeo claimed uh, some months back? Although they have since retracted that, Um, but it continues within the administration. For example, Navarro has been a harsh critic of Dr. Anthony Fauci, saying that his own qualifications for looking at the science is that he's a social scientist with a PhD. Now, Dr. Deborah Burks appears to have joined Dr. Fauci and the Trump administration doghouse. In both cases, uh, they are probably the the best qualified to talk about COVID-19. Well, there's an assault on the truth, right? You know, there's this sort of you know, if nothing's true, right? I mean, we had Leonard, we, we had Kudlow on our show the other day, and we were quoting him economic statistics mm-hmm. that countered uh, his point of view. And he said, "Well, you've got your economists, I've got mine." It's like, no, there's, <laughs> there's data here. You know, same on hydroxychloroquine. Well, you've got your doctors, I've got mine. Well, no, actually, we've got the FDA here who's made a decision based <laughs> on science. But the the reason I bring up Soviet 
you know, that was a classic Soviet thing, right? Is if you if you assault truth, then there is no truth, right? You create enough questions about all this kind of stuff, and some people just throw their hands up in the air and say, "Well, do we really know? You know, we don't really know. That's just CNN saying that, or the Democrats, or or you know, government bureaucrats." It's 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 a remarkable thing to see in the 21st century in, in, in American democracy. Let's talk a bit about China. Uh, you, um, didn't you major in Chinese history in, at Yale and then served as chief of I staff did. to U.S. Ambassador Gary Locke at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing from 2011 to 2013? Also, uh, were stationed uh, in uh, Hong Kong uh, as, a, as a reporter on, on uh, economic developments in Asia. So you know a bit about China. Have, um, I suspect that gives you insights into what's been going on, how the president has switched from what felt like deference to China to suggesting that it's our number one enemy, although with some exceptions to that. Uh, what, what changed? Trade, tariffs, or um, the what he's been calling uh, the Chinese virus and the Kung flu? Mm -hmm. Yeah, China has been a, a really a focus of mine for 25, 30 years. First, first thing I studied, first place I lived, and, and later worked, you know, both as a journalist um, and in and in government. And this is one of those cases in the book where where I give credit where credit is due because the president stood up to Chinese bad behavior, right, in ways that previous administrations of both parties refused to do, or were reluctant to do, or were fearful to do. Uh, I tell a story in the book, which which is indicative, meant to be illustrative of, of my own view of it, is when I was in the embassy in Beijing as chief of staff, the ambassador, we, we had, from my perspective, both our proudest uh, moment, one of our proudest moments, but also uh, a disappointing one. And that is when the U.S. took in, if you remember this, the blind dissident Chen Guangchen, who fled mm -hmm. to the embassy um, fled house arrest. Here was a guy uh, who had challenged China's one-child policy and all the things that came with it, including forced sterilization. Anyway, the U.S. welcomed him in to protect him. Um, that was great. Uh, but then, after a few days, you could tell that uh, the feeling had turned and that the, the focus became getting him out. This is too disruptive for the U.S.-China relationship. Too much concern about how China would punish the U.S. as a result. Um, and I tell that story because I say, okay, here comes Trump. And he says, enough of that. You know, we're, we're going to stand up and call it out. You know, welcome. And by the way, I think that that approach is not going to change too much even when President Trump is out of office, whether it is in three months or four years. Um, the trouble is what we find ourselves in in 2020 is on really a spi spiraling standoff escalating and escalating again. And that's a dangerous place to be without an end game. And like with so many things, Trump in his approach to the world, there's a lot of bluster, but not a lot of strategy. No end game with Iran or Syria or Russia or now China. And that's a dangerous place to be, particularly when you are ratcheting up the tensions. There are people who serve Trump, advise him, who believe there will be war with China within five years. Steve Bannon oh, says right. that on the record in the book. That that's a, that's a remarkable place to be. In a pair of interviews this Tuesday, the president said Joe Biden is weak on China, adding that, 
quote, if I don't win the election, China will own the United States. You're going to have to learn to speak Chinese if you want to know the truth. But then when he was asked about John Bolton's claim that he told Xi to proceed with detaining Uyghurs in, in camps in Western China and about China's crackdown on political freedoms in Hong Kong, Trump chose not to condemn the repression. Instead, he, he trashed John Bolton. Yeah. Well, this is the thing about Trump. One other consistency in his approach to the world and to his own administration is if you get on the wrong side of him, you are the enemy, right? You are second rate. I always should have known. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you're a closet Democrat. I mean, that's the one. And John Bolton, of all people, right? You know, the rightest of the right in the Republican Party. Um, and this is a phenomenon in his administration. I, I, I saw it with many people who served him and loyally. Uh, once he calculated uh, that they weren't sufficiently loyal, he destroyed them or attempted to. And, and by the way, uh, he brings the party along with him on, on those people, uh, right? Uh, unleashes Fox News and other loyalists. It's, it's a difficult place to be for many of these people. You look at Alexander Vindman, um, you know, not, not only uh, getting forced out of the White House, but eventually forced out of the military. Um, that's the price you pay for getting on the wrong side of Trump. I want to uh, also talk about uh, North Korea, Iran, and a bunch of other things. We'll do it after we take a little break here, so stay with us. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Stop the testing right away. Show's over, folks. It'll vanish any day. It's a deep state hoax. Need some help? Don't look at me. You're on your own. I'm protecting Robert E. Lee and Roger Stone. In the country, the cries for justice ring through the streets tonight. But in the White House, the might is right. House, the liar tweets tonight. Okay. Before I get back to my conversation with Jim Shudo, I'd like to take just a few minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We need all of our loyal listeners to step right up now, to step up right now, and and to. Go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's given, then the number two, WBAI.org. Or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of the financial losses that we've suffered because of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516-620-3602-516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give2wbai.org. And, and one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. And joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a special offer for anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy during today's show. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be here. Yes, as Leonard was saying, BAI buddies are sustaining members of the station. They keep us on the air, really. They keep us uh, having that monthly influx of of funding that we need because BAI doesn't accept corporate underwriting or sponsorship 
of any kind where the last station on your New York City dial powered 100% by listener contributions. So if you become a sustaining member of the station by making a contribution of $10, $20, $30 a month, whatever amount you're comfortable with, uh, for $10 or more, uh, take it out of your credit card, your debit card, whatever's easiest for you. You can cancel at any time. We would be delighted to send you the book that Leonard has been discussing today, The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World, by our guest, Jim Ciotto. And it's it's uh, really a chance to, uh, to take a step back and uh, look at this presidency – uh, certainly the the foreign policy aspect of this presidency specifically uh, from the bird's eye view, which Leonard is obviously one of the main things that we try to do every day on Leonard Lopate at large. So please, uh, whatever label, level you're able to show your support for the show and the station uh, that brings it to you weekdays from one to two, it all helps. Give us a call. 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to wbai.org, and please help this, support this independent station, uh, uh, because uh, really, uh, we are a unique station, uh, and in this case, we have, a, 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 we give you an hour of, of conversation, insight, and knowledge uh, with every installment of this show. I want to get back to Jim Shuto. Anything else you want to say, Jesse, before I get back to my guest? Just two real quick points, Leonard. Um, the first one is I just – before in the past, we've talked about how we like to sometimes line a few shows up back-to-back -back and have a kind of theme. And so I just wanted to let listeners sort of in on our thinking, which is today's show – uh, with Jim Ciro, uh tomorrow's show, when we're having Jeffrey Tubin talk about his new book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, the investigation of Donald Trump. And then Monday's show, uh, we're having Eric Alterman discuss his book, Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse. This is our three-part summer series on where we are now in America, thanks to the man sitting in the Oval Office. Uh, very quickly, we, we obviously uh, do a lot of shows that have nothing to do with the president, although his name has a strange way of showing up in uh, conversations that seem unrelated. <laughs> he always seems to find a way in there. Uh, but uh, and, and take it from me as someone uh, regular BAI listeners may know I, I, who hosted a show about exclusively about Trump. I hosted Trump Watch on WBAI from 2016 to 2019. Uh, doing a show just about Trump uh, can be a bit limiting, especially as the constant barrage of things, uh, new policies continue to, to hit us. But here on Leonard Lopate at large, where, as you know, any topic that sustained, that we think can sustain an hour is fair game for us, we do like to pause every once in a while and talk about the elephant in the room, so to speak, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, um, the president and what he's doing. And so that was one really quick point I wanted to bring everyone's attention to. And then really quickly, Leonard, before I let you get back to the interview, I just wanted to let everyone know um, that th this has come up in the past. 
anyone who signs up today and contributes, signs up to become a BAI buddy, that is, like we've been saying, a sustaining member for $10 or more by calling 516-620-3602 or going to the web at give to wbaiorg If you sign up today to do that, Thursday, August 13th, 2020, no further action is, is needed on your part. You don't need to tell the person on the other end of the phone at the call center anything. You don't need to check any boxes online. If you sign up to become a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, you will get this incredible book, The Mad Men Theory Trump Takes on the World, with what I have to point out is an incredible cover with the president taking aim at a globe uh, in a pinata form. You have to see it to, to really get it. Uh, we will send you this book. Uh, but whatever level you are able to contribute to the station, it all helps. And the pandemic, as we've been saying, has made it even more important to step up. So one last time, the number is 516-620-3602. The website is give to wbai.org. If you become a sustaining member, you get a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Mad Men Theory, Trump Takes on the World. Uh, and But whatever level you contribute at, thank you from all of us at the show and all of us at WBAI. And now I'm back with Emmy Award winner, George Polk Award winner, Edward R. Murrow Award winner, uh, a number of other <laughs> awards, and best-selling author of uh, a previous book, The Shadow War, and now this one, The Madman Theory. Um, let's talk a bit about North Korea. Why do you think that Trump's relationship with Kim Jong-un has blown hot and cold throughout his presidency? Because when he, he uh, in, 19, in 2017, the president called Kim little rocket man. Kim responded by calling Trump a dotard. Uh, and uh, there was strong fear uh, among senior members of his administration and the Pentagon that that might actually lead to launching a military action against Pyongyang. And now uh, Trump has kind of uh, declared his love. He said the two of them fell in love a couple of years ago. So what's going on here? So Trump's policy to North Korea is, is a quintessential uh, example of the madman theory at work because he has unpredictably gone from threatening war and fire and fury to a bromance, uh, you know, back and forth really in this, uh, but sadly ended up largely in a worse position than we were with North Korea uh, than when we began. But, but let, let's play it out a little bit. At the height of tensions with North Korea in, in 2017, uh, after North Korea uh, set off its sixth nuclear test, its biggest ever, there was genuine fear within the Trump administration at the highest levels that the president was going to get the U.S. into a war with South Korea, and a bloody one. And they were so concerned about the president's decision-making and about his madman approach to these things that the, the Pentagon hesitated to give him military options. And mm -hmm. even beyond that, U.S. diplomats made sure to communicate to their North Korean counterparts that they did not know what the president was going to do next. Uh, he was so unpredictable, they, they, they communicated that because they didn't want the two sides to end up in a war that they didn't want. Uh, you, you may remember at the time there was this discussion of a so-called bloody nose strike, you know, a limited military strike that would uh, scare North Korea into coming to the negotiating table. 
The fact is no one in the Pentagon believes such a thing existed because they believe that North Korea would interpret even a limited military action as the start of a decapitation strike. And then in response, rain hellfires down on Seoul, which they have the capability of doing. You know, the U.S. intel assessment as to what the death toll of a quote-unquote limited military engagement would be was in the tens of thousands. Uh, so the fear at that point of the president's decision-making so great that his own advisors held back military options from him. Uh, that, that one of those remarkable instances of distrust. Now, what happens is the president takes a 180 turn the next year going for this summit diplomacy. And once again, contrary to the advice of his most senior advisors, no one was opposed to attempting diplomacy, but they were opposed to this idea that diplomacy by itself would somehow change North Korea's fundamental calculations. The president was convinced that personality alone could drive this. Uh, the intel assessments and the diplomats were telling him, listen, you got to get concessions before you do this because we don't trust them. And as it turned out, the president was wrong. So one year of fire and fury and three years of the love affair have left North Korea with a bigger, not a smaller nuclear program. And it's an example of where the madman theory played out and, and the madman theory failed. Joseph Yun, who served as President Trump's special representative for North Korea policy until 2018, told you, we used to only think of Kim Jong-un as unpredictable. Now we had Trump as unpredictable, and I would mm -hmm. communicate that. Uh, so uh, you said that when there were escalating tensions with North Korea and also Iran, the president's advisors mm hesitated to give him military options because they feared feared that he might accidentally take the U.S. to war. Uh, he's yeah. uh, he, he's in, pulled in, back every time, hasn't he? He has to the, to, to, to the general degree. You know, and, and as you mentioned, I, I recounted how it took place with North Korea, but it happened again with Iran in 2019, where again, his own advisors and, and officials in the Pentagon were concerned the president if if not intentionally, they don't believe he intentionally wanted to get the U.S. into a war, but that he might bluster the U.S. into a war by miscalculating. So, again, U.S. officials took the remarkable step of communicating to their counterparts on the enemy side, in effect. Uh, in Tehran. They did not know what the president was going to do. Um, and uh, and, and Mick Mulroy, the deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East until last year, says that we told allies that we didn't know what the president would be willing to do against yeah. Iran. He said it was possible he could make a decision that would lead to an escalation of the conflict and, and that escalation could lead to war. So they needed to relay that to Iran so they realized not even his staff knew what would happen if they attacked another oil facility, for instance. This is a yes. pure example of the madman theory. It is, and this is the thing when you know you quote, you know, a Fox commentator saying that this is an editorial piece. You know, these are the judgments of his own advisors who were in the middle of it. They were in the room as the decisions were being made and the messages were being communicated. It's it's their view of this. Uh, now, to be fair. Uh, and I write about this in the book, with all things Trump, what is what is folly to some is wisdom to others. And, you know, the Navarros of this world will still claim uh, that this whole thing has worked and that the world respects the U.S. now. Now, if you look at the way 
uh, leaders such as Putin, Kim, Erdogan, and others have acted, actually, uh, it's, it's frankly hard to support that argument. Is this the reason that uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis quit? Uh, he wouldn't budge at the time. Uh, so when you go against uh, Trump, should you assume that you're going to either uh, wind up being pushed out or, or quitting? Yes, uh, sadly. I mean, Mattis, for Mattis, everyone has their limits, right? For Mattis, the final straw was the withdrawal by tweet uh, from Syria in December 2018. Mattis, in his letter, says, Alliance is important to me and to the country and to our security, and I can't stand by while we run roughshod over them. Um, so that was his limit. Um, everyone has their limits, and some don't have the choice. Uh, Susan Gordon served for decades uh, as an intelligence official and analyst, and the president deemed her not sufficiently loyal enough, and then instead puts in as director of national intelligence, by the way, a position created to take the politics out of intelligence because of the problems that caused in the run-up to the Iraq war, uh, put in a flat-out political operative who then followed through on a sort of loyalty purge uh, inside uh, the intelligence agencies. So uh, you know, the, the sad fact is it doesn't end well for virtually everyone uh, in the administration. Everyone has their limit when the president deems them not loyal enough, and he goes, he goes on the attack. You report that in September 2018, when a handful of mortar shells that caused no casualties or serious damage struck near the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad's fortified green zone, Pentagon officials were surprised when they received a call from a senior official on the National Security Council that dem demanding that military options for the president to retaliate against Iran be provided. They, they felt this was a, a nothing situation. They did. And it was another it was just another example of, of how the president used and viewed the military, right, as a sort of tool to be used as a threat at any point and without consultation. Uh, there so often. And this is another takeaway of, from Trump's madman theory is that he unleashed it on his own advisors and the system. He's dismantled the national security policy making in this country. Uh, the, the, the policymaking follows the decision. It follows the tweet. You don't have grand debates in the Situation Room, a discussion of, uh, you know, the strategy and the end game, etc. You have the president who makes a decision on the fly, and everyone else has to line up or, at times, try to stand in the way of his worst impulses. You mentioned an incident with Iran uh, where a, a tiny attack that caused no damage, you know, the, the White House is looking for military options against Iran, and then the Pentagon slow rolls in because they say that, you know, this is not the time to do that. In Syria, I tell the story about how twice, uh, when the president ordered the withdrawal, the, the Pentagon found a way to delay, to do it in a half measure, but hope that his attention would turn so that they could maintain the mission there. And it worked. You know, there's a paper tiger aspect to this whole thing, uh, as I was saying, that you know, this projection of strength abroad, that's not the way the foreign leaders view him. And this projection of strength at home, it's not the way his own advisors view him or even behave under him in many circumstances. After a conference call with the White House, which included the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Paul Selva, and Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, John Rood, uh, 
they uh, being told that they should prepare for war. They they uh, muted the phone. You say and uh, Selva said, "Is this a joke?" And then uh, after yeah. they got off the the call, uh, Selva and, and Rude made it clear to their colleagues that they wouldn't be providing the White House with any military options unless they were directed explicitly by the president himself. But on the other hand, in June 2019, President Trump balked at retaliation uh, when yeah. Iran shot down uh, a, a U.S. drone over international airspace. Uh, and U.S. warplanes were already in the air. So I guess the, the Pentagon thought that this was a cause for some kind of retaliation. You have a, a, a pendulum swing, a rapidly swinging pendulum between military action and pulling back military action with this president, you know, looking for options after a minor strike, pulling back retaliation after a major strike where Iran shot down this massive U.S. drone over international waters, but then later uh, taking the move that none of his predecessors would take, which is to kill Qasem Soleimani, arguably the second most powerful person in Iran, in a remarkable strike, which and let's let's be fair. You know, in, in the aftermath, there was talk of that unleashing a war. It hasn't happened. Uh, you can say, you know, the president got away with it, sent a message. I mean, we should be clear. Iran often delays retaliation for months or even years. That doesn't mean that we've seen the end of this. But still, but they did uh, retaliate. They struck a U.S. Far and right. They did well, retaliate. They, did. they, they struck did. a U.S. base in Iraq, and that injured dozens of U.S. service members. Uh, and right. some people and say it's grateful. They're grateful that the attack didn't happen on Iranian soil. Yes, and, and I, I tell the story of that how the president, you know, denied that that was even consequential. Oh, a couple guys had some headaches. Well, anybody who's and I spent a lot of time in these war zones and met folks who suffered traumatic brain injury. It is not just a headache; it has, it has debilitating effects. So they did strike back and they did injure. U.S. forces, perhaps not to the degree that some had feared, right, um, yet. Uh, and you, but again, that's always with the caveat so far, right? We don't know what happens next in that conflict. Now, not long after he was elected, the president, if I remember correctly, gave a speech uh, that was critical of the FBI and the CIA uh, and uh, invoked the, the concept of the deep state. Um, so what are his relations with those agencies like? Um, he, in, in recent times, he has uh, gotten rid of some of the, the top leaders and put in people who are uh, friendlier to him. So are their relations better now? No, in a word, sadly. Uh, there's a deep morale problem in many of these agencies. Susan Gordon speaks very openly about it. She says, listen, you know, the commander in chief has every right to question my judgment or analysis or opinion. Um, but when he questions my, and I'm paraphrasing her, her words here, but her patriotism or her loyalty and dedication, that she says is, is harder to take and understandably so, and harder to forget, right? So and it's not limited to her because the president has lodged these attacks, not just at individuals, but entire institutions. Um, just in the last couple of days, he's now going after the director of the FBI more and more. He's already attacked the FBI, but Christopher Wray, the president attacking him as insufficiently loyal. Um, he views these institutions to some degree as his playthings, um, and he is willing to uh, attack, uh, break down, 
uh, demean folks who've dedicated their lives uh, to service of their country, uh, regardless of the consequences. But it's been uh, suggested that the reason that the intelligence community uh, has uh, offered as a counterbalance to charges that Russia is doing things to support Trump's reelection, that China and Iran are favoring Joe Biden, uh, that that really came after pressure from the president. Yeah, I found that juxtaposition pretty remarkable. My spidey sense went right up when I saw that. <laughs> so here's Russia that once again is interfering in the election to benefit Trump, which, by the way, is the assessment that Trump for four years has tried to denigrate, deny, uh, including in that Helsinki moment. And here they're doing it again. But by the way, Russia, China and, and North Korea, and Iran rather, also interfering, which is true. A lot of countries are interfering in the political process. And by the way, they want Biden to win. Okay, to, to what degree? Because notably, uh, what was notable about 2016, right, was the, was the depth and the extent of it, the, the stealing of the DNC emails and the strategic release of them, uh, the stealing of the Podesta emails, the strategic weaponization of them, right? I always remind people that the Podesta emails came out 22 minutes after the Access Hollywood tape dropped. I mean, this was intentional. And now you have Russia uh, sending a pipeline of information, it appears, via a Ukrainian lawmaker that is in touch with two two. GOP lawmakers, Ron Johnson and, and Devin Nunes, it's happening again, going right after Joe Biden. What evidence do we have that Chinese and Iranian interference uh, is denigrating Trump to the degree that Russia is denigrating his Democratic rival? It's, um, yeah. it, it was a convenient juxtaposition of assessments. We've run out of time, unfortunately, and there's so much more to talk about. But thank you so much. We've been talking with Jim Shuto about his latest book, The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. It is published by HarperCollins. Uh, it's, what a pleasure. Unfortunately, that brings us to the Thanks end so of today's much. show. If you're just discovering our program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcast. Uh, a reminder that uh, WBAI is in a very difficult financial position because of the pandemic. If you value this kind of informative, in-depth interview, uh, that we bring you from 1 to 2 p.m. every day, please go right now to our website, give to WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602. Join us again tomorrow when CNN Chief Legal Analyst Jeffrey Tubin will discuss his latest book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. See you then. <laughs>